Jesus, we give this time to you and we ask that your spirit would fill each and every one of us, God, that you would bring conviction and encouragement, that you would challenge us, Lord, that we would see uh, the truths that you desire us to pull from this text, that there would be some form of relatability to the different people in this text. God, so please give us supernatural wisdom and understanding, uh, God, to, to learn whatever it is that you desire us to learn today and help us, uh, by the power of your spirit, uh, apply these things that we're learning. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been a few weeks, right? Uh, but if you've been with us for any length of time, you know this year we've been going through the book of Acts. And the last couple weeks that we taught on the book of Acts, we were in Acts chapter 13. Just to remind you of some significant events, in the beginning of Acts chapter 13 is when Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the Holy Spirit to be sent out as missionaries. They spent quite a bit of time in Antioch. The church was thriving. God says, hey, I don't really need you here anymore. I want you to go other places and and do in these other places what I accomplished through you in Antioch. As Paul and Barnabas answer this call to be missionaries, they travel uh, about many different places. They The text really kind of keys in on one specific place in Acts chapter 13, and that was Antioch Pisidia. If you remember, this is when Paul goes into the synagogue. He's given an opportunity to teach, to communicate the word of God. And he embraces his calling. He embraces this opportunity. He preaches this message that really basically takes us through a brief history of Israel. Essentially the whole Old Testament. He kind of summarizes it all in an effort to point people to Jesus. Just as Paul and Barnabas knew it was their calling to point people to Jesus, we too recognize that it's our calling to point people to Jesus. Now, as Paul and Barnabas continue to travel, fulfilling this calling as ministers, as missionaries, there's some setbacks. There's some opposition And we can expect that when we answer the call that God's placed on our lives, when we try to fulfill the mission, there's going to be opposition. This is the title of the teaching, Opposition Against the Mission. Opposition Against the Mission. This shouldn't be something that surprises us. This should be something that we should expect. See, the only thing the enemy hates more than a believer is a sold-out believer willing and purpose to transform the world around them. The enemy despises this. And because he despises this, we can rest assured that when we sell out for Jesus, there's going to be opposition. There are going to be attacks. Maybe they're physical. Maybe they're emotional. Maybe they're spiritual. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's losing a job. Maybe it's the death of a loved one, a loss of a job. Whatever the case may be, the enemy uses so many different things to oppose us and deter us from fulfilling the mission that God has given us. Now, the Bible teaches all about this, and we'll get into it later. But we should recognize, if we never experience opposition as a believer, maybe we're not a threat to the enemy. 
See, in Acts chapter 19, which we'll get into later, we see these men, they're referred to as the sons of Sceva. They have this exorcism ministry. Well, they stumble upon a legitimate demon and they go to cast this demon out. And the demon says to them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? The enemy didn't know their name. Why? Because they weren't a threat. They were, they didn't have a true relationship with Jesus. They didn't have access to the power of Christ. So their name was unknown by the enemy. See, we can rest assured when we purpose to sell out for Jesus, the enemy is going to know our name and he's going to do anything and everything he can to tarnish our name and prevent us from fulfilling the mission that God has given us. Let's look at it. It's Acts chapter, I want to look at 13 real quick, just so you know where we ended off in verse 50. Before we get into Acts chapter 14. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So the reason they left Antioch Pisidia is because they were being persecuted. So they fled, but they didn't stop. They continued to preach the gospel all in an effort to make disciples. They'll wind up in Iconium. Let's look at it. It's Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. So what do they do? They go to Iconium, specifically in the synagogue. This was the method that they had, as we've discussed before. People were coming to the synagogue to hear the word of God. They were coming to hear the Old Testament taught. They weren't coming to necessarily hear the gospel unless they had already heard the gospel at that point. So Paul and Barnabas, they take advantage of the culture and the synagogues that were set in place to get the message out there. And as they preach the gospel in the synagogue, it says many people were saved, both Greeks and Jews. Look at verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren, just as people are getting saved left and right, here comes who? Here comes the enemy out to distract, out to deter, out to oppose Paul and Barnabas from fulfilling their mission. So point number one, expect opposition. Expect opposition. You think that the opposition from these Jewish leaders threw Paul and Barnabas off guard? I guarantee you it didn't. This is what they were used to. They knew it was only a matter of time. They only had so many chances to share the gospel before the enemy was going to come and oppose them once again from answering the calling that God placed on their life. See, as believers, we can expect opposition. It shouldn't surprise us when we go through trials. Not that that necessarily makes it any easier, but it shouldn't surprise us when bad things happen to us. It shouldn't surprise us when we face suffering in this life. It's something Jesus promised would happen. But look at what the enemy does here. He doesn't just attack Paul and Barnabas. Through the Jewish leaders, it says, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. The enemy didn't just attack Paul and Barnabas. 
He attacked the truth. And that's what the enemy does. He opposes the truth. He's been doing this from the beginning. He wants people to question the truth of God's word, just as he did with Eve. Did God really say this? Did God really say he created the world? Did, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Was he truly who he said he was? Can I believe these things? The enemy, he attacks the truth. And he often does it through our minds. He poisoned. The Jews poisoned their minds, it says. The enemy often uses the world around us to bring us to this place of discouragement. To bring us to this place of disbelief. Can I truly trust the resurrection? Can I truly trust that that actually happened? Can I truly trust that the Bible is inerrant? That it truly is inspired by God? That it is God-breathed? Can I trust these things? Because the world wants us to doubt these things. Because the God of this world uses doubt to distract us and prevent us, once again, from fulfilling the mission. So what do we do with that? I can expect opposition, which is good, and we should. But with the expectation of opposition, I have to be prepared to defend my faith. That's exactly what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says this in verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Peter knows that the enemy is out to oppose the truth of God. And if I don't have a decent understanding of the word, if I don't know why I believe in the resurrection, if I don't know why I believe that Jesus truly was God in the flesh, if I don't know why I believe that he died on a cross, if I don't have a defense for these things, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to start doubting these things. But I'll tell you, as you seek these answers, God will provide these answers and he gives you a foolproof defense regarding his word That's exactly what's being attacked here. The word and truth of God. But Paul and Barnabas, they won't be fooled. They have the faith. They have the tools to defend their faith. Look what happens. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Look at this. Therefore, why? Well, the Jews were poisoning the minds of those who heard the gospel. And because of that, it says they stayed there a long time. They didn't allow the opposition to discourage them. They didn't allow the opposition from the enemy to lead them to this place of giving up, of quitting, of giving in. In fact, the opposite was produced in them. The opposition from the enemy, it actually produced more boldness in Paul and Barnabas. It produced persistence. That's point number two. Opposition should produce persistence. Opposition should produce persistence. Now, it's easy for us when we're opposed by whatever powers they may be, It's easy for us to fall into that place of discouragement. It's easy for us to want to quit. And and this is a very normal theme throughout the Bible. Some of the people that God used the most got to brought to this place of, of wanting to give up. 
of wanting to even die. They couldn't go through with the mission any longer. Let me show you. It's Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't know the story leading up to this, let me just briefly explain it to you. Now, Elijah had just been used by the Lord mightily. He proved that Yahweh is the one true God and Baal is no God at all. And after that, he slayed 400 prophets of Baal. God used him in a mighty way when Israel was in a very dark place being led by very dark leaders, Ahab and Jezebel. Well, after this miraculous thing happens and God uses Elijah, Jezebel says, uh-uh, he ain't getting away with that. So she sends people out to kill Elijah. And just after Elijah was used by the Lord mightily, you know what he does? He runs away and he hides. He's scared. Let me show you. First Kings chapter 19, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. Elijah said, God, I can't do it anymore. What you've asked me to do is too hard for me. I quit. In fact, not only do I quit, just take me, strike me dead right now. Luckily, God doesn't answer all our prayers. Okay, Elijah likely wanted to take this back here in a few verses. But sometimes we can feel like this. Sometimes personally, I can feel like this. One minute, maybe God's using me pretty profoundly. And the next minute, all of a sudden, I want to hide. I want to run away. I want to isolate. I'm feeling discouraged. I'm struggling with doubt. I'm struggling with defeat. It's normal. It's biblical. It happens. But we can't let ourselves sit in that place for too long. Because the Bible says that we're more than conquerors in Christ. We're not defeated. We shouldn't be discouraged. We shouldn't be deterred. We should persist. Now look what happens here in 1 Kings chapter 19. He says in 5, verse 5, Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back to the, came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. See what God did? He answered his prayer. In a different way than Elijah realized. Elijah was asking God to take him out of the trial permanently. What God did was give him the strength that he needed to endure the trial. He didn't take him out of it. And he tells him, the angel of the Lord, he tells him, because the journey is too great for you. I know this mission is too hard for you. I know you can't fulfill this mission on your own. And I did that intentionally. I allowed Jezebel to come against you. Because I want you to realize that you can't do this without me. And when you abide in my strength and not your own, now you'll have the tools. Now you'll have the means to persist, to overcome, to continue to fight. See, when the enemy comes against us, it's so important for us to go to the Lord for strength. Because without the Lord, we can't persist. persist. We can't persevere. And we see this persistence and perseverance through Paul 
and Barnabas. They didn't allow the enemy to get in their heads. It's interesting. God will often use the discouragement from the enemy as a means of encouragement. The enemy's discouragement is God's encouragement. What do I mean? If the enemy is coming after me this badly, then maybe he's scared of something. And maybe I'm a threat. Maybe he's preventing me from some opportunity that's right around the corner or even what I'm doing right now. There should be encouragement. Gosh, man, he sees me as that much of a threat that he's going to come against me relentlessly. God uses all of it as he uses Paul and Barnabas. They spoke boldly, boldly. They persisted. It says, who is bearing witness to the Lord, verse 3, in Acts chapter 14, of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So not only were they preaching powerfully, God was using them to do miracles, to solidify the message so that they knew the message was directly from God. Not that we need to see a miracle to know that the message was from God or is from God, but there are certain situations where we see throughout the book of Acts and the Bible as a whole where God does use people to accomplish the miraculous Acts chapter 14 verse 4 but the multitude of the city was divided part sided with the jews and part with the apostles this is the enemy's goal to divide the city but it's interesting god will use the goals of the enemy to accomplish his own goals God, yes, he desires that all be saved. But we see one of the reasons Jesus came. He says, in Matthew chapter 10, he says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to draw a line in the sand to force you to make a decision. Are you going to choose the family of God? Or are you going to choose the family of blood? He desires us to choose him over everything else. And he'll bring obstacles and opposition in our lives. To lead us to that place to make that tough choice. Who who am I going to choose right now? And the Lord's heart is that we would always choose Him. He used the division to bring people to Himself. But they had to make that decision. It says in Acts chapter 14, verse 4. Look at this last part. After the multitude of the city was divided, it says, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. What apostles? Paul and Barnabas are the only apostles that we see here in the book of Acts, which is interesting because this is the very first time that Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles. What's an apostle? Biblically, it's one who's sent out either by God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit with a specific message. Now, in the two New Testament, in the early stages of the church, God, He used these apostles, the original apostles plus Paul and Barnabas and some others, to lay the foundation, which is called the Apostles' Doctrine, so that people would know the truth of who Jesus Christ is. We don't just have the Gospels, we have the Epistles to help us fill in some of the gaps with the Apostles and give us proper doctrine. Now, the Apostles of that day, they had a special authority. God would inspire them to write infallible Scripture. There was a unique authority back then. But it wasn't just the authority, it was a gift. And we see today that there still is the gift of apostleship, not the authority. Now, if somebody tells you, 
leave, flee the church. If somebody tells, if I tell you one day, all of my words are directly inspired by God. Okay, if my, my words are infallible, I would never tell you that because I'm a fallible man. The only infallibility is when I'm directly speaking out of the word of God and describing it in a way that honors God's heart. Some will claim that they have a, the authority of, a, of an apostle, but we can see that that's not biblically true. However, they could have the gift of an apostle, which is different. The gift of an apostle is basically a shepherd of shepherds, much like what we see Peter and Paul and Barnabas and the early apostles do. They went from place to place, being able to, to discern specific gifts and specific people, to put them in the right places, to equip the church to be all that God desired it to be. Sometimes they'll fulfill a position as a pastor or an evangelist or whatever the case may be. But a big part of what they do is church planting. Okay, so the gift of apostle is still prevalent today. But if anyone says I have the authority of an apostle like they did back then, just just run away. Be very scared. The text continues. Acts chapter 14, verse 5. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. So there was a plot to kill Paul and Barnabas. What do they do? They fled. They didn't flee in fear, however. They fled in wisdom. Jesus, in fact, in Matthew chapter 10, he tells the disciples, hey, when they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. But then there are also times when the Bible talks to us, like with Stephen and his martyrdom, that we're supposed to endure persecution. So when do I flee from persecution and when do I endure persecution? I can't give you that answer. But if you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, I believe that he will. In each and every circumstance, Paul and Barnabas knew it was time to flee. So they fled to Lystra and Derby, which is about 20 miles away from Iconium. Now, this is interesting, historical fun facts. Lystra and Derby were in the uh, Roman region here, uh, Lyconia. Only during a certain time period in history. It was from 37 AD to 72 AD. That's the only time that they were in that region throughout all of history. Which is awesome. Because this is the time period that Paul and Barnabas were preaching this message. What's the point? The Bible proves itself historically. We can even look into the history books and go, Oh my gosh, they only had this window where this text would be accurate. And history shows us that this was the window that Paul and Barnabas preached in Lystra and Derby. And that's exactly what they do. Look at verse 7. And they were preaching the gospel there. Even though their lives were just threatened, there was an attempt on their life. They were almost stoned to death. They continued on, went to the next place and preached the gospel. They always had their primary focus in their minds, in the forefront of their brains. Regardless of what happens, I'm called to preach the gospel. I'm called to make disciples. And that's what they do. Then they come across this man in verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. 
this healing, this guy's going to get healed, not to ruin the story, uh, is very similar to the healing that took place in Acts chapter 3. Remember when Peter and John healed that guy outside of the temple that was crippled from uh, from birth, just like this man. There are some parallels, but we won't get into all of them for time's sake. But this man, as the text tells us, he's been crippled from birth. This is a picture of us in our sin. We were born into sin. We were born with a sinful nature. We were literally born spiritually crippled. We were literally born spiritually bound to sin with an innate desire to do things that we know we shouldn't do. This man, he only was able to see the world with a certain perspective. He only had a ground level view. He couldn't really see his own potential because he didn't know the Lord. He couldn't see his purpose. He couldn't see why he existed because he was crippled, not only physically, but also spiritually. So Paul, look what it says in verse 9. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. This man, it said, heard Paul speaking. What was Paul uh, speaking? Verse 7 tells us he was preaching. He was preaching the gospel. It was the gospel that caught this crippled man's attention. So, too, is it true for us when we were crippled in sin, when we didn't know the Lord, when we didn't know the reason or purpose for our existence, what caught our attention? It was the gospel. Oh my gosh, this is the answer that I've been looking for. That, that Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose again, all in an effort to forgive me, not just so that I could have eternal life, but I could have abundant life now. It all makes sense now. This is why they're suffering, because of sin. Everything clicks, everything comes together. But what gets our attention from the get-go is what we hear. It's the gospel. That's exactly what happens with this man. He hears Paul's word and Paul observes him intently. It says, and seeing that he had faith to be healed. As Paul was preaching, God revealed something to him. That this man had faith to be healed. And Paul is going to end up healing this man. Now, I don't want to cause any confusion. Because there are some with healing ministries that will say you need to have a certain amount of faith to be healed. Okay, if you don't have this faith, then you can't be healed. Okay, that's not necessarily biblically true. If you were with us a few Wednesdays ago at our barbecue, we saw actually the opposite example. What do I mean? It was Mark chapter 2, another paralytic man. It says that Jesus saw their faith, not his faith, the faith of his four friends bringing him to the feet of Jesus. And because of their faith, Jesus brought that man healing. So sometimes God will use other people's faith to bring us healing. See, God, he's given each of us a measure of faith. That's what the Bible tells us. Every single person, not just every believer, every single person has a measure of faith. Even if it's as small as a mustard seed, and God can do a lot with the mustard seed. We don't know how much faith this man had, but Paul observed he had enough to turn his life around, to experience physical 
and spiritual healing. So Paul, look what he does in verse 10. He said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. It's the first time this guy has ever used his legs to stand, to walk. And he's leaping up and down. This is exactly what happens when we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were once crippled, lame, unable to walk upright. But when we receive the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and God puts us back on our feet. He says, you you can walk upright. I'm going to change your perspective. I'm going to change your view of things. I'm going to help you recognize your purpose. I'm going to help you realize your potential that I have so much for you in this life that you couldn't see before because you were bound in sin. But in me, there's freedom. And I want you to experience the fullest extent of that freedom. We've all once been there. Maybe some of you are there now in that place of hopelessness, in that place of darkness, feeling crippled, feeling bound in sin, like you just got knocked on the ground, like you can't stand up on your feet. It's Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, verse 2, it says this. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. This is what God offers anyone and everyone. Feel stuck in the pit, in the miry clay. You can't move around. You can't really accomplish anything. You have this low perspective of yourself in life. You don't even know what your potential is because you don't even know why you're here. He says, I'm reaching my hand out for you. You just take that step and reach your hand back to me and I'll pull you out of that. And not only will I pull you out of it, I'll put your feet on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. I'll give you purpose. I'll give you meaning. I'll change your life forever. That's exactly what happens to this man. But it all started somewhere. It all started with faith. This cripple was healed because of the gospel. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. His faith truly came from the preaching of God's word. You ever struggle with doubt? You ever struggle with disbelief? You ever question certain things in the word? Well, the Bible gives us the solution. You want to have faith? Get in the word. Listen to to it being taught. Read it as much as you can. Sometimes people come to me and they're struggling with doubt and disbelief. And I ask them, when's the last time you read the Bible on your own? It's like, man, it's been a while. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we want to grow in our faith, then we have to be in the word. Acts chapter 14, verse 10. Sorry, verse 11. Now, When the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying uh, in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So their message was so powerful And not only that, they heal this man. This guy is miraculously healed that these people, 
They think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. These are Greeks, obviously, thinking, oh, Zeus and Hermes, these were Greek mythological gods. Now, legend has it in Lystra where they were is that Hermes, this is a mythological story, okay? That Hermes and Zeus had come down to Lystra, uh, one day, uh, you know, um, wearing humanity, if you will, okay? And they interacted with the people, and everyone was very rude to them. No one showed any hospitality, except for this one couple that took them in, showed them hospitality. And so what Hermes and Zeus did was they destroyed everyone in the city, except for this couple that took them in. So there's some indication that these people are thinking, man, we, we better, even if we're unsure, we better treat these guys like gods in case uh, we face what our ancestors faced way back when. So they choose to worship them as gods. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitudes, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all things that are in them who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. It didn't work. He just preaches another powerful message. But I want to break this message down a little bit. Uh, after they try to worship them as gods and sacrifice to them, Paul and Barnabas, they tear their clothes. This was an act of mourning. This was an act often associated with blasphemy because these people were committing blasphemy by saying that Paul and Barnabas were gods. And what Paul and Barnabas do right off the bat is they take the attention off themselves and they point back to the Lord. It says, we also are men, verse 15, with the same nature as you and preach you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. It's easy sometimes for ministers or people to treat ministers like they're more than just mere men. And ministers of the gospel are just mere men, even if God uses them profoundly. Even if God uses a man to heal you by his grace, they're just men. Paul and Barnabas, they write, we're just flawed men. We're not gods. There's one God. He's perfect. We're imperfect. And he tells them, uses this as a segue to point them to Jesus. He says, we preach to you, back in verse 15, that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Paul, he gave them a hard truth. These people have been worshiping Zeus and Hermes all their life. That, that's all they know. And he calls Zeus and Hermes these useless things. Not even gods, because they're not even gods. They're mythological. You need to turn from these useless things and turn to the true God. Paul was up front with them from the get-go. He didn't try to sell cheap grace. He said, if you want to receive the gospel, you got to turn from this old lifestyle. you got to turn from these useless things. It wasn't enough for these people to just add Jesus to the pagan practices they were already a part of. They had to turn away from their pagan practices, give them up, and turn to Jesus. See, 
we don't just add faith in Jesus to the things we already believe. And that's what Paul's getting at. We don't just add faith in Jesus to the things we already believe. We turn to Jesus and he conforms our belief. He he transforms us by the renewing of our minds. Things I believed seven years ago, I know they're lies today. I didn't just try to add Jesus to my little realm of beliefs. I recognize I got to go to Jesus and he's going to change the way I view things. He's going to transform my beliefs. This is the point, at least one of the points Paul is making here. But he goes on, the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. He says, stop worshiping the creature and start worshiping the creator. Don't worship creation. Worship the one who created all of this. He's using a very similar argument that he used back in Romans chapter 1. I wonder when he was writing Romans chapter 1, if he was thinking uh, about this specifically. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that we they are without excuse. We'll get back into this in a a second. What Paul's saying is creation uh, is enough evidence that God is real. So we're without excuse. Just the fact that we're here is enough reason to believe that there is a creator. I want to jump a few verses. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. These people have been rejecting the creator from the beginning and worshiping anything that they can set their hearts on. You've heard me say it before. Our hearts are little idol factories. Literally, we can take anything and turn it into an idol. We can take hobbies. We can take people. We can take a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a child. We can take jobs. We can take literally anything and everything and put it on the throne where God and God alone belongs. This isn't new. The heart of man desiring to worship whatever he can set his heart and hands on has been going on since the beginning of time. It's connected to the fall. And I believe part of it is that men and women, people in general, they want to worship something they can see. They they want to worship something they can touch. The faith thing is just, uh, how do I know? So, they find anything they can touch and anything they can see and they raise it up to be their God. The text says that there are consequences for this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26, it says, For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. God gave them up to vile passions. He let them worship the creatures that they wanted to worship, whether it was an individual or an idol or whatever the case may be, themselves. See, when we choose to worship creation 
and don't acknowledge the creator, the Bible teaches us that we're on a road to destruction. But just as Paul says here in Romans chapter 1, he also says in Acts chapter 14, look back at his message here. In verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. He's made himself known to people, but he's also given them free will to choose the way they want to go. Sadly, there's a warning in the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Truly, its end is destruction. So many people are worshiping things other than the Creator. And sadly, what they're doing is walking towards the edge of a cliff without even knowing it. And yes, God will try to make himself known to people, but there's also a responsibility that people have to pursue the true living God. The message continues. Acts chapter 14, verse 18. And with these sayings, Sorry, verse 17. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, the things that he's communicating here are things that these Greeks believed Zeus provided. Okay, so he's identifying with them. He's meeting them where they're at. Okay, you believe in a false God, but but some of the things that you believe about this false God are actually true. You're just pinning it on the wrong God and you're pinning it on a God that doesn't exist. So I'm going to take uh, what you what is true that you believe and I'm going to help you see the fullness of truth. So he points him to Yahweh by pointing to the reality that they know that there's a creator. And that's his argument. He's using, using the argument for creation. He's using, using the argument of intelligent design, if you will. Intelligent design isn't a new argument for the existence of God. It's existed from the beginning. Okay, since man was created, it's obvious that this stuff didn't come from nowhere. As we mentioned in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, it says that we're without excuse by not having faith in a creator. Look in front of you. Look around you. You think this came from nothing. It's scientifically impossible that all this came from nothing. Nowhere in the history of anything did something come from nothing. It doesn't happen. There had to be an original something. And some might, some people will like make this argument with me. Well, then who created God? Even if you followed that logic, there had to be something that always existed forever. And that something started something else. See. We could get into the intelligent design argument quite a bit, but I'm going to bite my tongue for time's sake. But it's so obvious. It couldn't come from nothing. Just something I was thinking about. If you have a child, or if you like kids, if you don't like kids at all, then maybe this argument's not for you. But how can you look in a child's eyes and say, this came here by chance? This just happened to come here. No. The Bible teaches us that I formed that child in its mother's womb. That I thought about that child since the foundations of the earth. That I've had a plan. That I've had purpose. That I've had meaning for this child's life. And if you're a, a parent, especially, and you look at a child, you recognize all of that. There's purpose. There's meaning. There's a reason behind it all. By the way, it's for another teaching. 
But when you look at DNA, it's mathematically impossible that it could come to the complexity that it is. A human DNA strand. Even the atheists and agnostics, most of them, acknowledge that. So they come up with all these different theories that aliens planted life on here. Because they recognize it couldn't evolve to how complex it is now. So they'll say, aliens planted life here, but God didn't create life. It's just crazy. We won't get into that anymore. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Then the Jews... From Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So Antioch to Lystra, that's where some of these Jews came from, is a hundred (laughs) miles. These guys traveled 100 miles with a purpose. What was the purpose? To shut Paul and Barnabas down. And they tried by stoning Paul. This reveals something to us that the enemy, he's relentless. Point number three, the enemy is determined to bring opposition. The enemy is determined to bring opposition. 100 miles ain't no thing for the enemy. He will travel and does travel to and fro about the entire earth seeking whom he may devour. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about the whole earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's willing to put in the effort. He's willing to put in the energy. If he sees an opportunity to take you out, he's going to take it. This is who he is. So often, the enemy we see goes out of the way to deter, to distract, to prevent those who are sold out for Jesus to fulfill the calling and mission that he's placed on their lives. So they stone him in Acts chapter 14. And it says, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, Paul talks about this stoning, among other things, scourgings and, um, and, and shipwrecks and, and so much persecution that he's faced, but this stoning was pretty significant. It's interesting, right after he starts talking about that, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he tells us this, uh, he once knew a man. He's talking about himself, by the way. Don't be confused about that. He says, whether in the body or outside the body, I do not know. He tells us this man, he was taken up to the third heaven in paradise. And he's seen things that it'd be illegal for him to talk about. Because words don't do these things justice. Many scholars suggest that that moment happened during this stoning. See, those that were there thought he was dead. They literally thought he was dead. Now, you got to imagine, he's probably got blood all over him, maybe some broken bones. Stoning was not a pleasurable thing to go through. It wasn't an enjoyable death. But they didn't just say, oh, he looked really beat up. They thought he was dead. I don't know if they checked his heart rate or whatever the case may be. But there's a chance that he actually did die and God brought him back to life. We don't know. Acts chapter 14 Verse 20, 
Look at this. This is wild. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. He gets right back up and goes back into the city to the people that were just trying to kill him. This is madness. This is wild. Paul was determined to leave Lystra on his own terms. And he wasn't going to leave until he fulfilled the mission that God gave him. And in order to do that, he had to overcome opposition, including being stones. Point number four. These last couple ones are short. Overcome opposition. Overcome opposition. Our ability to overcome opposition is contingent upon what we're focused on. What does Paul do? He goes right back in there to fulfill his mission. The author of Hebrews will say it like this in Hebrews chapter 12. Whether it's Paul, we're not sure. Could be Barnabas, could be Apollos. He doesn't tell us who it is, but I love this. He says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Context, running this race of faith. He says in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, having our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at verse 3. For consider him, who? Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you be become weary and discouraged in your souls. Feeling discouraged about the race? Battling? So much opposition. The author of Hebrews says, the only way we're going to win this race, the only way we're going to run it well, is we fix our eyes on Jesus, and not just the person of Jesus. What Jesus did for us. He, he, he talks about the cross. He says, if you want to be motivated to endure, consider what Jesus endured on the cross. Sometimes when I'm going through difficult times, when there's opposition, when there's discouragement, there's all these different things. I have to ask myself, is the obstacle set before me more difficult than the cross? Because if Jesus pressed on for me, then it's my duty to press on for him. This was the mind of Paul. He recognized all that Christ endured for him, so he was going to endure for Christ, regardless of the persecution, regardless of being stoned possibly to death. He endures. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. We'll, we'll finish this last section pretty quick. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They preached the gospel. Why? To make disciples. That was the purpose in preaching the gospel. They knew where there were going to be some that followed Jesus and some that didn't. Their purpose in preaching the gospel wasn't to make people feel good. Okay, It, it, it wasn't just to give them a good feeling. It was... To inspire people to become disciples of Jesus Christ. That was his purpose. The text continues as he goes back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. All these different places that he was making disciples and sharing the gospel. Uh, both Paul and Barnabas, it says in verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Exhorting them to continue in the faith. He knew they needed some encouragement. And look how else he encourages them. And saying we must through, listen to this, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. 
how encouraging, right? We must go through a bunch of tribulations and trials to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul isn't saying this, that that you have to earn your way into the kingdom by suffering. That's not what he's saying. We're saved by faith through grace. It's not of works. What he's saying is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven means that you're going to suffer. It's inevitable. There's going to be persecution. There is going to be opposition. There is going to be heartache and heartbreak. It's just part of what we signed up for. It's the reality. No cross, no crown. If we want to share in the glory of Christ, we got to recognize we're going to walk through suffering in this life. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. He's just telling them the truth. He's not selling them cheap grace. He's saying, hey, this is the part, this is part of what you signed up for. There are going to be very difficult times. There are going to be times when you want to quit, but continue in the faith, he tells them. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So uh, these elders couldn't have been along, uh, couldn't have believed for a very long period of time. But Paul recognizes he needs elders in these churches. So he wasn't just preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to make disciples and ultimately to plant churches. So he needed to establish leaders over these churches. The text continues, verse 24. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now, when they had re- preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there, they sa- uh, sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So basically, they returned the same way that they came. They wanted to see where churches were at. As it says, they wanted to strengthen. They wanted to encourage the people to continue in the faith. And then they go back to Antioch. This is the conclusion of the first missionary journey. Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, many scholars suggest that it was likely a year, maybe a little more. We don't know for sure how long it was, but it doesn't seem to be much more than a year. But I want to point out something else to you. When they got back to Antioch, look what it says. Verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. This is the fifth and final point. Complete the work despite opposition. Complete the work despite opposition. They didn't leave until they were done. They didn't go home until they knew they did all that God had called them to do. That's true for any mission that God calls us to, but it's also true for the mission that he's given us generally in this life. We can't go home until we fulfill our mission. We can't go to be with the Father for eternity until we're all through, until he's done with us. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also all who have loved his appearing. This is believed to be the last letter that Paul wrote. And he says, hey man, I completed the work, I finished. But that completed work at the end of his life wouldn't have happened had he not completed the work on the mission field. 
And when he fulfilled that work on this mission, look what he does. He comes back to Antioch and he tells everybody about everything that the Lord used him and Barnabas to accomplish in verse 27. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there for a long time with the disciples. So they come back with zeal. They come back with passion. They got a story to tell. But had they not overcome, had they not persisted, what story would they tell? See, if we want to have the story to tell, we got to continue to fight the good fight. We got to continue to overcome the opposition. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. And when they come back, they share about everything God had done says that they stayed there a long time. This is believed to be where Paul wrote the book of Galatians, which we're going to start next week. We'll get into that. But I want to cap it off by reminding us that this was the end of their first missionary journey. It wasn't easy. They faced a lot of trials. They faced a lot of tribulation. Paul might have died, okay? They thought he was dead. He was stoned. So much opposition. And as we look at the story of Paul and Barnabas, I want us to reflect. Maybe you're in that spot where where you're just facing one trial after another. If it's not a physical trial, then it's an emotional trial. If it's uh, not a loss of job, it is division in your family or issues with your spouse. Uh, If it's not death, it's financial issues. Whatever the case may be, there's so much that the enemy throws at us. The Bible encourages us, don't quit. Don't give up. Why? Because God can give you everything that you need to endure your trials, to face this opposition. And he'll use the opposition for his glory and your benefit. But if you quit, what story will you have to tell? God's got a story to tell through each and every person in this room. And if we want the fullness of that story, as Paul and Barnabas did, we got to complete the work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the strength that you give us to overcome opposition. I thank you for Paul and Barnabas and their story. Uh, God, so they went through so much, uh, and yet you continue to give them what they needed to continue on. And we know that you will give us all that we need. So I ask that you would give everyone in this room uh, everything that we need to continue to press on, to continue to overcome, to continue to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, we love you. Um, God, help us to, to understand what that means even better. Help us to understand, more importantly, how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.